since the Paris Agreement was signed, so back when endorsed back in, uh, in late 2015, so basically over the last four years, that these 35 big global banks had put a total of $2.7 trillion into the fossil fuel industry. And perhaps most alarming of all, that number uh, has been increasing year after year. There's been a lot of focus on the U.S. election lately and what climate policy could and should look like going forward. But while there's good reason to think about the future of public policy, we can't forget about the financial sector, the banks, investment companies, insurance firms, and other institutions, and the work that's taking place there to shift dollars out of fossil fuels and into clean energy solutions. That's what we're focusing on here in the latest episode of Political Climate's special podcast series, Ditched, on fossil fuels, money flows, and the greening of finance. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And I'm glad to be back with you with a fresh episode in this Ditched series. Earlier on in the series, we looked at the origins of the divestment movement, which started with student protests at universities and snowballed from there. Then we looked at the role regulators can play in creating financial sector policy that accounts for climate risks. We looked at how oil and gas companies and utilities are trying to influence the flow of capital to keep money going into fossil fuels. And then we got the perspective of a major investor, CalPERS, and how the pension fund is factoring climate change into its investment decisions. In this episode, we take a closer look at the banking sector and what institutions like J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and others, banks that you and I use, can do to combat the climate crisis. I speak to Patty McCulley at the Rainforest Action Network about how activists are pressuring banks to clean up their act. Then I hear from Joe Sandberg, co-founder of the alternative banking company Aspiration, which is putting climate at the center of its business strategy. But first, I want to bring in Monica Medina and Miro Corena, founders of the leading independent environmental news platform, Our Daily Planet, which Political Climate is thrilled to be partnering with to bring you this special ditched podcast series. Hi, Miro. How are you? Hey, Julia. Thanks so much for having us today. Of course. Monica, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Julia. We are so excited about this partnership because we think that there's so much happening in this sector and so much for you to cover. And it's great that you're focusing on it. Well, I'm so glad to have the support of Our Daily Planet and so excited that people can now find our political climate episodes on the Our Daily Planet website, ourdailyplanet.com and in your newsletters. It's truly an amazing resource that you guys have built on all things climate, environment, sustainability, and beyond. Uh, it's a must-read news source, so uh, super excited to be partnering with you guys and thankful for that. Now, to set the stage here for this episode, Monica, I want to circle back with you and get your sense of why this is such an important topic today, to talk about the financial elements of fighting climate change, because the election, the U.S. election, has been so all-consuming, I think, that the finance piece has maybe been sort of over to the side. Why do you think it's important that we do talk about that finance piece? I think the finance piece is central to the way the government's going to look at all of these issues because climate isn't just a stovepiped issue where um, the left of the party and the green uh, part of the party is focused. It's really going to touch on every aspect of what the government's doing. And I think in a lot of ways, they'll be following 
what the financial sector is already doing in terms of uh, getting out of fossil fuels. It's, it's really striking to someone like me who's been watching these issues for decades to see the change in just the last few years. Banks are now becoming much more uh, risk averse, and they don't want to be involved in um, fossil fuel deals that aren't going to be financially uh, viable. And that's the case in so many parts of the world, like the Arctic, for example. So I think um, this is a great time for both government and the financial sector to work together to move towards the you know, energy and climate future that we really need, both in terms of investing in new technologies as well as adapting to the world that we live in. Yeah, totally. The interplay there is really interesting to watch because I feel like politicians feel emboldened to make big policies to set big goals when they know the financial sector is already ready to deploy dollars in those clean energy solutions and to say stop drilling in the Arctic. And so they need that private sector confidence to to make these policies. But on the flip side, the financial sector needs the assurance from policymakers that the financial system, you know, that they're making good bets in this clean energy stuff. They need a stable policy framework in which to operate and indeed maybe incentives and other targeted policies to really make these new technologies work. So yeah, the interplay there I think is so interesting and they each kind of drive each other forward. They absolutely do. And they absolutely do. And, and the financial sector is going to push the government and the government's going to push the financial sector in a, in a really great synergistic way. Miro, I want to go to you because there's been actually a lot of news happening on the financial side, which people may have missed amid all the election coverage. So could you tell us what you're seeing on the financial news side of things? Yeah, absolutely. And this actually crosses over into financial news and what's happening, um, you know, with the push from green groups and green advocacy groups in that there is a really heightened focus on who President-elect Biden will appoint to become the Treasury Secretary and who he might appoint to head the Fed in 2022 when uh, Jay Powell's term is over. And this is really interesting because before, you know, incoming administrations were really uh, scrutinized as to who who they would appoint to the EPA or to the Interior Department to drive climate policy. But in this election, not so much. Um, You know, environmental groups are really honing in on the Treasury Secretary because currently the U.S. banking sector is very exposed to climate risk. And I think if we're going to um, prevent the next financial crisis, we need to start thinking about climate risk climate disclosure, what this means for financial institutions and companies. Um, And I think that these financial appointees that Joe Biden makes are going to have to talk about climate change in a way that they haven't talked about in the confirmation process and if and once they get the job. So there's a lot of focus there. And it's really exciting that these two sectors are merging and that we're kind of seeing the synergy from the private sector to the government and how climate change just really has to be an all-encompassing focus for us to really act on it as a, an economy and a government. You know, it's interesting because even under the current administration, President Trump, uh, the Federal Reserve under Jerome Powell has said that they want to join other central banks around the world in working on the financial risks related to climate change. So there's really this consensus, I think, growing around the globe that these issues have to be addressed in tandem, both the, the financial risks and the climate risks, both the physical ones of what happens to like property and, and investments that are in the real world and then what happens with the transition 
in as, as money flows from fossil fuels into clean resources, what that means for economies and ultimately for, for people and, and businesses. Monica, do you have another thought on that? I do. I think the international financial institutions are focused on this like a laser beam now. I think um, you see institutions like the World Economic Forum, where the leaders of world economies come together between business and government. And there's a huge focus on climate now and on resilience and adaptation. So this is just going to become more and more of a focus, both domestically and internationally in the finance and banking sectors. Yeah, and I'll just want to add one point is that this is also a real opportunity for the U.S. to catch up to other countries who have a financial regulatory framework and priorities for green investment. Um, so I think this is really exciting for, you know, the green activist community and for, you know, the financial sector. This, again, back to my point, a really good synergy and it's promising. So to wrap up our introductory remarks here, you know, Miro, could you explain to our audience, you know, what our Daily Planet covers in general and how you guys are thinking about this financial coverage and and just where people can find more? Yeah, absolutely. So our approach to Our Daily Planet is that we want to cover all aspects of the environment. And, and there are many from conservation to finance to clean energy. And I think that the way that we build a diverse coalition to push for climate action is that we get people from all walks of this broad ecosystem to really tune in on the issues and know what's going on across the field. So we are you know, really thrilled to have Ditched and to have you uh, as guest posts in the email and to be on our site, because I think that this is going to be an increasingly important part of the climate conversation going forward. So for all of our readers who are listening today, you know, make sure to sign up for Ditch to get the notifications and you can find these um, episodes going forward in our email, hopefully weekly. Yes, we'll be airing these ditched episodes on Mondays over the next few weeks, at least till the end of the year and continue looking at different elements of this intersection between climate policy and finance. Julia, I think this issue is going to go on and on and on. You're going to find more and more to cover as the days and weeks go by because it is such an important and integral part to solving the climate crisis and solving a lot of our environmental and conservation crises as well. Follow the money, they say. So that's what we're doing. Exactly. Well, now we will turn to some in-depth interviews looking at, again, the U.S. banking sector and what those banks in particular can do to combat the climate crisis. It's important to think about because we all put our money in banks, or most of us do. So what do those banks do with our funds? How is that contributing to climate change and what can be done about it? So let's turn now to an interview with Patrick McCulley at the Rainforest Action Network. So I'm Paddy McCulley, and I'm the Climate and Energy Program Director of Rainforest Action Network. So what is Rainforest Action Network, and why is an organization with the word rainforest in it working on the relationship between banks and climate change? Yeah, so Rainforest Action Network is a very action-oriented environment and human rights and social justice organization, which... uh, Started off about 30 years ago, a bit over 30 years ago, working in, especially in Amazon and in Indonesia, Central America, in the rainforests. And we were particularly looking down at World Bank funded projects that were leading to rainforest destruction. And so ever since the start, we've had a very sort of follow the money attitude and have seen that if we can stop finance going into environmentally and socially destructive projects, we can, we, we can stop those projects. 
And since then, we have we took up working maybe 20 years ago on private banks. And I've done a lot of corporate campaigning as well. A lot of work on the you know, consumer goods companies that are you know, buying palm oil from the rainforests or that are involved in uh, buying uh, paper, which is produced from pulp, which is destroying rainforests and so on. And we also realized uh, some point in our history that, you know, climate change is going to destroy forests. And, you know, if we stop deforestation, we're still going to lose our forests if we don't stop climate change. So we started working on energy as well. And also uh, we started working on uh, protecting forests in, in Appalachia for mountaintop removal coal mining. And that was, you know, a bit over 10 years ago. And when we did that, there was no, you know, big public banks like the World Bank obviously involved, but the Wall Street banks were very much involved in that. So we started campaigning on them and, you know, very successfully. And then 2015, we started to get policies uh, out of the banks that stopped them financing mountaintop removal. And that was also, there was a time of, you know, leading up to the Paris Agreement. So that was an extra impetus in the banks to come out with policies. So, you know, eventually we got policies on coal mining and then coal power from all the U.S. banks. And when these policies started to come up from U.S. banks, Bank of America was first. Then internationally, banks started to follow as well. So now we, we've uh, expanded our scope, you know, from mountaintop removal to coal mining in general, coal power. And since then, I've been working on, on tar sands, Arctic oil, and right now, because the climate crisis is obviously so urgent, we're looking at fossil fuels in general, and our, our, you know, we're working towards getting the the banking sector out of fossil fuels as a whole. So, when we say banks, what kind of institutions are we talking about here? Could you give us some names? Like, what are the institutions that you're talking about when you talk about the banking sector? Because, of course, you know, we have all kinds of investors, people who move money around that are relevant when we think about who funds you know, climate change, basically. Um, so what about the banks? Who, who are we talking about here? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty complicated when you look at the financial sector and you try to sort of separate out which institution does what, what are the rules of the different uh, different parts of the sector. Um, you know, I think it's one way to try to divide them all out is to, you, you can see sort of four main big pillars of global capitalism, basically. You have banks on one side, which are the sort of lubricant of the whole capitalist system, which are providing loans, but also have this very important role in underwriting issuances of, uh, of stocks and bonds, um, which is a you know hugely important source of corporate finance. And then you have insurance companies, which are insuring all these projects. Without insurance, the fossil fuel industry couldn't exist like other important sectors of the economy um and then you have asset managers which are big companies like blackrock and vanguard and people may have their 401ks in and they're taking all these big pools of money from the economy and then deciding you know which companies to put it into um and they're really the focus of the of the divestment activists and then you have also some ways at the top of it all is the asset owners so the pension funds and endowments and sovereign wealth funds around the world. And that's, you know, many tens of trillions of dollars. And that's ultimately the sort of power in the system because they own the banks and the insurance companies and the, and the asset managers. So that's the sort of the big picture of it. Uh, Rainforest Action Network, we're very 
focused on banks and insurance companies, but also realize all these things are intertwined. All these different parts of the financial sector are really important. Uh, And also the divisions are not always so clear so that insurers are also huge asset owners and asset managers and banks also have big asset management arms. So it's very intertwined. Well, the banks, I think, are interesting because they're public facing, right? To like the consumers like you and me, like we pick a bank, right? You can choose where you want to put your money, which I think is why it's interesting to see this this spotlight on them uh, really happen. And I think some listeners may have heard of campaigns like Stop the Money Pipeline, you know, which is really trying to shine a light on this. Can you just explain what campaigns like Stop the Money Pipeline are trying to do? Yeah, Stop the Money Pipeline is a, a, a sort of fantastic coalition. Um, it's now, I think, over 140 groups, and I think very unique worldwide in terms of being a, a grassroots coalition that is very focused on finance and getting the financial sector out of fossil fuels. It was born just about a year ago, um, and actually, you know, large part of the push for it to happen came from well-known author and environmentalist Bill McKibben, who. You know, he sort of suggested something like this. A lot of people saw the potential and uh, it came together in a really exciting way. And the groups that are involved is a really broad uh, range of groups, all the way from like the sort of big, big green groups like Greenpeace and Union of Concerned Scientists, all the, the way to, you know, sort of much more local environmental justice, indigenous rights groups. So really good broad coalition. And it's really played a big role in educating uh, climate activists around the U.S. and the importance of the finance sector and sort of how the finance sector works. The big demand is, you know, it stopped the money pipeline, stopped the pipeline of money from finance to the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and it's specifically, it is focused on these four different sectors that I mentioned, you know, banks of which J.P. Morgan Chase is the main target. I can get on to why. Insurance companies, of which Liberty Mutual is the the main campaign target, uh, and then the asset owners, which is particularly working on state pension funds and asset managers, and particularly BlackRock, which is the world's biggest asset manager by a, a large margin, and secondarily Vanguard. Originally, it was set up with very much a sort of a street activism intention and it was it, it was set up to have a big mobilization around the 50th anniversary of earth day uh, last year and it's also very close to the student strikers who you know were so active and visible uh and then of course covid struck and that sort of changed everything so a lot of the activism has become more online and doing more work in the media and you know you know hopefully we come out of the pandemic all that energy will uh you know will be really strong again so you mentioned J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, in March, uh, Rainforest Action Network, I think with some other partners, put out a report called Banking on Climate Change 2020. And it details why institutions like J.P. Morgan Chase, as well as Wells Fargo, City, and Bank of America, are a problem when it comes to financing fossil fuels. Can you put some numbers around this and explain why that is? Yeah, so uh, Banking on Climate Change is our big flagship annual report. We've been doing it uh, 10 years now. The last report, we looked at 35 of the top global banks, and we looked at the volume of, of lending and underwriting for the fossil fuel industry as a whole, uh, and for specific sectors like coal mining, coal power, tar sands, uh, fracking, and so on. What we found in our last report is that since 
the Paris Agreement was signed, so back and endorsed back in uh, in late 2015. So basically, over the last four years, that these 35 big global banks had put a total of 2.7 trillion dollars into the fossil fuel industry, and perhaps most alarming of all, that number uh, has been increasing year after year. Uh, you know, after the Paris Agreement was signed, after it became really clear that we need to cut emissions drastically and quickly. Uh, these institutions are going in the wrong way. Now, there's some positive trends and we see in, in the coal sector, not surprisingly for a number of reasons, we, we see financing decreasing. But uh, overall, you know, the trend is going in the, in the wrong direction. And, and just to stress from that data, you know, as you say, it's these big four U.S. banks that really stand out. And, and more than anything, it's J.P. Morgan Chase stands out as the world's biggest funder of fossil fuels. So of that 2.7 trillion with all these banks put into fossil fuels, uh, just about 10 percent of it came from J.P. Morgan Chase alone. So they're really the, the gorilla in the room when it comes to uh, fossil fuel banking. Yeah, I think the number there is $269 billion, over a quarter of a trillion dollars into fossil fuel financing since the Paris Agreement coming just from J.P. Morgan Chase, exactly. which is interesting because we're seeing this now like more in the media, the idea of shining a light on money flows around fossil fuels. And yet you're saying that the money's increasing, which is hard to square with other headlines we see around like the energy transition taking off and like renewable energy accelerating. So how do you square this? Why is there more money going into fossil fuels amid all these other, you know, new and positive developments? I think part of it is just a time lag. You know, it's like these new policies come out and it takes a while before we see their effect. And the, and the rate of new policies has been massively accelerating. New climate policies? New climate policies and fossil fuel restriction policies. And so we've seen from the banks, you know, they started with coal policies. And now we have scores of big banks around the world, which now have coal restriction policies. And then more recently, especially European banks have started to adopt uh, oil and gas policies, most uh, commonly on, on tar sands, but also on Arctic oil and gas, and some of them on fracking, uh, some of them on offshore uh, oil and gas. And, and then just, well, just under a year ago, uh, Goldman Sachs came out with the first, they were the first US bank to come out with a policy restricting uh, oil and gas when they had a policy they wouldn't that they wouldn't fund any more oil projects in the Arctic. And then a couple of months later, JP Morgan came out with Similar one, but broader because it was also included gas in the Arctic. So we're seeing the those policies sort of accelerating and getting increasingly tighter. And, and what we've seen with all the banks in the U.S. and internationally is that their first policy on a specific sector tends to be pretty tepid. And then over time, they tend to ratchet it up and it gets stronger. So I think p- part of the answer why we're not, we're still seeing financing or up until you know, the end of 2019, we still see financing increasing in all these sectors is partly because off the lag, you know. Well, sticking with JP Morgan Chase, because they are the largest fossil fuel financier among the banks, they came out just in October 2020 with a new commitment to align their financing with the Paris Climate Agreement. That sounds like a big, little bit nebulous goal. So I'm curious if you can kind of spell out for us what exactly they committed to and whether that's enough. Yeah. It is a it is a big deal, and the announcement is, as you say, uh, rather nebulous. Um, obviously, they've come under a lot of pressure from us and our allies, and we'll probably, you know, maybe later talk about where the pressure on them is coming from. Um, but they have been feeling the pressure, and so yeah, they came out with this announcement. And Morgan Stanley uh, over the summer had come out with something 
similar. They became the first big US bank to come out with a sort of a, a big, broad, long-term climate announcement where they came out with a net zero by 2050 uh, commitment, which followed on from Barclays and Bank on Matt West in the UK, which both have come out with sort of Paris alignment slash net zero by 2050 announcements. So with the JP Morgan announcement, that's a really big deal for such a huge financer, banker of fossil fuels to do that. But again, there's a lot of questions and what does it actually mean for them to be Paris aligned? And they didn't come out with any clear targets. They have said they're going to come out next year with targets for 2030 uh, in three sectors, oil and gas and utilities, which would cover coal power and automotive manufacturing. So it'll be very interesting and we'll be doing our best to pressure them to make sure those those targets are actually meaningful. Um, and we expect a bunch more banks in this country and internationally to follow with these types of long-term commitments. That's great, you know, but also at the same time, you know, a year ago, it seemed like getting a net zero commitment from anybody, a corporation, a bank, a government was sort of a big deal. But now they're becoming very common and it's actually sort of becoming the, the standard of where, you know, it's like the minimum action on climate change. And now with, you know, there's a bunch of announcements recently from East Asian governments. So China now is a target for net zero by 2060, Japan and South Korea, both 2050, you know, the EU is a 2050 target, California is a 2045 target, you know, fingers crossed now with the Biden administration, we get the 2050 target here. So basically, net zero by 2050 is going to be, you know, that's just going to be following the market. There's, if any bank is not going to be net zero by 2050, they're going to be like the boutique bank for you know, a few authoritarian petrol states. There's going to be nobody else to bank. So the real question now is what are they going to do right now? What are they going to do by 2030? You know, what's their trajectory? And there's also a bunch of really important methodological issues to be sorted out. How do they actually measure their their financed emissions? How are they measuring their their fossil fuel emissions? How do they define what is a coal company? What is an oil and gas company? When, when you get down into the weeds, uh, there's a lot to be sorted out. So there's still... A lot of work to do on JP Morgan Chase and others to, you know, first of all, get these big commitments, but then make them real and meaningful. Um, and if anybody's interested in what that means, we, we, we put out a set of uh, principles. We call the Principles for Paris Aligned Financial Institutions. That's endorsed by 60 other environmental human rights, uh, indigenous rights groups and networks around the world and, you know, lays out pretty clearly what what really needs to be done to make these commitments real and make them align with one and a half degrees, which is what the IPCC basically says we need to do. Yeah, I mean, that point about more work to come, I think, is so important because the headline is just the start of the work. It's not where the story ends. Uh, so these commitments, however, you know, are important. Like you, you need to have that as the, as the mission and to set the path, but then follow through is really important. That goes for governments, but also for these financial institutions. Um, I will say, you know, JP Morgan Chase, they noted that they're planning to make their own operations 100% renewable. So that's great. That's internal. But what I think we're really talking about here is what they do with the money that they move around as a bank and focusing that. Yeah, no, it's like oil companies, you know, ExxonMobil says they're going to reduce their emissions by X percent, you know, because they're going to stop methane leaks at their at their wellheads. You know, that's all well and good. But while they're still churning out huge amounts of oil and gas and have plans to increase it massively over the coming years. It's really uh, not that much more than greenwashing. You know, the, 
Similarly, if, if a bank, you know, puts some solar panels on its roof, that's, that's great. But if it's shoveling tens of billions of dollars out to the oil and gas and coal industries, not so important. Well, let's take that a level up and look at financing clean energy, because it is really important to not only have financial institutions think about where their money is being placed in the polluting sectors of the economy, but also making sure that they're putting money into the cleaner sectors of the economy and making sure that those projects are equitable and, you know, really meet the needs of local communities. But my understanding is those aren't just a one for one in the sense that some banks are really financing a lot of clean energy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're ditching fossil fuels at the same time. So there's kind of like a weird interplay there. It's both part of the same discussion, but not. How do you think about that? How do you think about where banks put their money on the clean side and how it relates to the dirty stuff? Yeah, it's really important that banks are financing the the clean energy transition. That's absolutely vital. And the banks cannot sort of get off all the dirty stuff they're doing by saying, oh, look over there and look at the, the clean stuff we're doing. You know, what we used to call alternative energy is not alternative anymore. It's the you know fastest growing energy source in the world. It's the cheapest energy source in the world. It's huge business. And of course, banks are going to be putting money there. There's a lot of money to be made there, and that's great. But they cannot use that to offset the, um, the dirty stuff. And in terms of where the ratios are, you know, Work World Resources Institute last year, I think, did an analysis of sort of the, uh, dirty to clean energy lending and found that for Chase, for example, it was a four to one ratio. So, like, you know, four dirty dollars for every clean dollar. The clean stuff is great, but they're going to ramp it up hugely, which I believe they will because the sector is just increasing so rapidly. But they got to really ramp down the, the dirty stuff and do it quickly and set targets to do it, be transparent about how they're doing it. Is one of the other problems is they come up with these big green financing commitments, but without any transparency to actually understand what is in there. You know, do they include advisory service for some solar plant to be a part of their you know trillion dollar commitment, or or not? Uh, how do they measure? You know, what is a clean energy company? There's lots of methodological issues there that we have no transparency into. Right. Valid debates to be had around what counts as green or as ESG, environmental, social governance, you know, style of an investment. That that definition, I understand, is is forming and becoming more specific, but also still relatively broad. And I think there's different opinions around what that should be. So that's a fair yeah. point. And there's some really alarming things there. You know, there's this whole sector of green bonds which is getting a lot of attention. So bonds that are specifically you know, sold for green activities, but all sorts of dirty stuff can end up in those green bonds when you look at when you look closely. I mean, until recently, China was even including coal, you know, so-called clean coal in their green bonds. Um, just going back on the forest side, there's there's discussion about a, a green bond to build a railway into the Amazon, which is uh, you know for the sole purpose of you know taking out soy and lumber and commodities that are destroying the forest. Um, so, yeah, there's a real need for some clarity there about what is what is green. And the, the EU is doing some important work on this, and uh, you know what they're calling the green taxonomies, of defining what basically the finance industry can call green and what they can't. That's going to be important that's going to be uh, you know finalized pretty soon and no doubt there will be some things in there which don't look so green but it will be better than the sort of wild west situation we have now so you mentioned a government player there uh, what role does regulation play in all this what role does policy play in all this we're speaking as joe biden looks poised to become the next president of the united states so what should we watch for 
yeah, re regulations are really important. And, you know, one of the reasons why banks around the world are adopting these policies that I've been re referring to is because of regulations that are getting in place or regulations that they see coming down the line. Now, that's especially uh, in the EU and uh, you know, the UK as well. Um, and, you know, the EU is moving pretty well, EU and UK uh, are moving pretty fast on this, and there are some encouraging new regulations that are on the on their way that are are, are going to really help. Um, and of course, the big issue now in the regulatory front is what's going to happen in in the US. And you know, under Biden administration, and even without having the Senate, there are a lot of things that that could happen in the regulatory front. And we already have some pretty encouraging signs from from Jay Powell at the the head of the Fed that, um, for example, they will join. There's a big network of central banks around the world. Central banks play a really important role in, in regulating the economy and particularly regulating banks and other financial institutions. Uh, that network is called the, the Network on Greening the Financial System. And every I think every other significant central bank in the world is in it, apart from, of course, the Fed. But it sort of looks like Jay Powell and other Fed leaders would like to be in it. And they're you know sad not to have a seat at the table, but obviously Trump has been keeping them out of it. But uh, you know with the Biden administration, they will go into that pretty sure and, and, and Powell's been making noises about that. And there are a, a lot of things that can be done in the regulatory frontier that could help. What One thing, for example, is uh, climate stress tests, which are coming into regulation in, in Europe soon. And the, the concept of stress testing sort of for banks came in after the last financial crash. And basically the idea is you run a different, a bunch of different economic scenarios, financial scenarios, and you see how would the banks be able to stand up to it and you know with the aim of not getting into a 2008 situation when it looks like a whole banking system is going to crash and you can do that same thing with climate you run a bunch of climate scenarios and see what does that what does that do to the bank and the idea is that that will basically dissuade the banks from putting so much money into high climate risk and climate impact scenarios and encourage them to be putting more money into the into the green economy yeah that word risk is is an important one, I think, in this discussion, or at least it comes up a lot, climate risk and evaluating risk, because I think that's a term that the financial sector is very familiar with. They they bake that into a lot of their decision making. So adding the climate risk element here, I think, is language that these these banks and, and financial institutions seem to really understand, and they can start to put some numbers around. And to that end, there was actually a report recently from the organization Series, which we, uh, we spoke to a member of Series on a previous episode in this series of podcasts. And that new report is is focusing specifically on banks, which is, of course, what we're talking about today. And they found that, you know, these U.S. banks are ex enormously vulnerable to climate risks and that their own businesses are actually going to be negatively impacted by holding on to fossil fuel and polluting assets. So it's not just pressure from the outside, but understanding their own vulnerabilities internally as businesses to holding onto these assets. And these are both physical risks from extreme weather events, but also transition risks and just getting left behind as the economy evolves to go green, holding on to assets that are not so valuable anymore as so-called stranded assets is, is not great for business. Yeah, definitely this concept of climate risk has become really important in the, in the finance sector. I mean, especially over the past year year and a half um it's been pushed you know in, the, in a very useful way by uh some very prominent 
people in the sector, like Mark Carney, who's a former head of the Bank of England, and this network in green, the, green the financial systems has done some excellent, excellent work on it. And it's, you know, it's enabled people within the banking sector and the regular banking regulatory sector who otherwise would just not get environmental or, or climate issues from sort of a, the way we might get it from a social environmental perspective for them to say, oh yeah, actually if the whole you know planet goes up in flames, we actually won't have a financial system, you know, and that'll harm their uh, annual bonuses. So uh, they better do something about it. So that, that, that has been helpful. And that series report you mentioned is actually really, uh, Really interesting report. And one of the things I found very interesting about it, which I hadn't seen anybody bring up before, are the um, the indirect risks that the bank face through their, um, basically through their sort of exposure to each other. I think they call it the networked financial risks. So big issue that really brought down the financial sector in 2008, in which the regulators were totally unprepared for, was the, the amount of interbank lending and how all these big banks are really tied into one another and it, one of them goes down they sort of all go down and that's happened when you know when Lehman Brothers collapsed suddenly we faced the prospect of the entire financial system going down the plug hole and this report by series sort of looks at that same concept from a climate perspective and shows that the climate risk held by one bank is basically held by all the banks uh, and they show that that indirect climate risk is actually much greater like 60% bigger than the uh, than the direct climate risk so i think that hopefully will get some attention from regulators, you know, especially under a, a new administration, which is going to be, I think, very sympathetic and understanding of these concepts. Because we alluded to it earlier, who are the parties that care about that? Who's driving these financial institutions? Obviously activists, but it's not just them, right? So who else is really driving this forward? Yeah, the way I sort of look, look at it, and it's sort of the our theory at Rainforest Action Network of, of how we're putting pressure on the institutions is that the, the banks specifically is that, you know, there's pressure coming from above, there's pressure coming from below, there's pressure coming from the sides, and all those things are, are, are creating change. And what I mean by that from above, it's specifically from, uh, from the shareholders and the banks. And these shareholders are these big asset managers and big pension funds. And you see a rapidly accelerating awareness among asset managers and asset owners of the importance of, of climate risks. And they see that these banks are holding all these, these climate risks. If you're managing a pension fund, then you need to get a 7% rate of return over the next 30 years to pay out all your pensioners. You sort of got to hope that there's still a, a livable planet at the end of 30 years and Florida hasn't gone underwater. Um, because it's going to be really hard to get those returns in a world in, in complete chaos. So they do have a strong interest in actually trying to address climate change. And so investors are putting pressure. From the sides, you have you have sort of their you know social license being taken away, their you know their brand being damaged. Uh, you have pressure from peers. So, so, so you have all these. Um, there's a lot of different initiatives in the finance sector to try to deal with climate change. There's a whole alphabet soup of different names, Terra and Pacta and PCAF. I think they do move the, the sector in, in the right direction. And they show the sector, look, this is the direction of travel. This is where you have to go. So just finally here, what should consumers take away from this? Because again, we're talking about brand name banks, banks that we see on our corners and maybe have our own money in. Is the only option to just ditch the bank or can you, if you want to, have your voice expressed and, and heard by these these banking institutions? What do you what would you say to the individual here? Yeah, you know, there, there's a range of things to be done. Um, 
you know, in a way, just ditching won't help too much. I mean, all in favor of people <laughs> ditching from these real bad actors like J.P. Morgan Chase, but you also got to write to them. You got to tell them why you're ditching. And even if you're not ditching, you know, you got to write to them and threaten to ditch and say, I don't want my money to be managed by, I don't want my account to be held by a, a bank, which is the world's biggest financier of, uh, biggest banker of fossil fuels. Um, and there's some other things. If there's any young people in your life, there, there's a thing called the Youth Pledge, which you can find on, online, and basically young people pledging that they will not ever set up a, a, an account to do any banking with J.P. Morgan Chase while they're the big world's biggest financer of, of fossil fuels. And that's really important because, you know, it's actually very hard to change your bank account and the banks obviously know that. So it's, they're really, really eager to get young people in. And once they're in the door, they sort of, you know, tend to stay there. So it's really important to, uh, for young people to say we're not going to start. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of things and, you know, join the Stop the Money Pipeline Coalition, join Rainforest Action Network, you know, RAND.org. And then, you know, we give you lots of opportunities to uh, get out in the streets and protest at your local bank branch and sign petitions and write letters and make calls. People in the streets to people in the boardrooms and these big decisions we're talking about. It is, it is fascinating to see this evolve and fascinating to see institutions, including J.P. Morgan, actually start to step up. But what we'll have to watch is, of course, as you mentioned, the follow through. So, Super helpful to talk to you. Thank you so much for laying this out. I really appreciate it, Patty. All right. Thank you, Julia. It's great to talk. A lot of Americans bank with one of the country's largest banks. Household names like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Citibank, and J.P. Morgan Chase. But not everyone banks with the big guys. Some people choose to put their money with a nonprofit credit union. These institutions are popular among people concerned about climate change because a credit union's investments tend to be more local and stimulate businesses within communities. Also, by virtue of being member-owned, there's a greater opportunity for members to dictate the bank's activity, steering it away from polluting resources. Other people choose to bank with non-traditional financial institutions, and LA-based Aspiration is one of those. So to round out this episode, I speak to Aspiration co-founder Joe Sandberg about how this online bank and investment platform is fighting global warming. So what is Aspiration? Well, Aspiration is a place where you can enjoy automated impact to make the world better. It's also a place where you can get bank accounts and investment accounts and life insurance policies. But what makes Aspiration special is how it allows you to match your money and your values. One of the great powers we have every single day is to ensure that what we do with our money is aligned with our social conscience. And one of the biggest factors of social conscience is what we're doing to fight the climate crisis. And our money every single day has a big impact on the climate crisis. And Aspiration ensures that you can have the financial services you need every day with the peace of mind of knowing your money is never lent to fossil fuel. Interesting. So this is basically an alternative to uh, one of the major banks out there. You would instead basically open a bank account with Aspiration and that would be, you know, how you'd operate and, you know, use your money. And at the same time, you're saying you guys have structured your company so that people can do good in terms of fighting climate change at the same time. Is that right? That's exactly right. And it, it begins with something so important for everyone listening to know. Your money in your bank account is used by that bank to make loans. And if your money is in an account at one of the big banks, your money is being used to make loans to fossil fuel companies. 
So a climate action that we should all take ASAP is make sure your money in your bank account isn't being lent to fossil fuel projects. When you move to aspiration, you have the immediate peace of mind of knowing you fixed that possible problem. Moving your bank account can be a pain in the neck. And we hope at Aspiration that you'll move your bank account to Aspiration. But for those who are excited to take climate action every time they buy something, we've launched plantyourchange.com, which allows you to attach the tree planting feature of Plant Your Change to your debit or credit card anywhere. So suppose um, you have your card at XYZ Bank or your credit card from XYZ Firm. You can go to plantyourchange.com. You can type in the number of your debit or credit card connect your bank account at wherever you presently have it, and you can enjoy the tree planting service of Plant Your Change without having to move your bank account. Every time you buy something with whatever card you have, wherever you have it, if it's attached to Plant Your Change at plantyourchange.com, you'll know every time you buy something, you're planting a tree. I want to branch out and talk about some bigger stuff in a moment, but first explain how you guys do that. How can people be sure this isn't just greenwashing? Well, we ensure that the impact is real in several different ways. First of all, in fact, with Aspiration, your money is never lent to fossil fuel. That's audited, that's a fact. And if your money is at one of the big banks, your money is being lent to fossil fuel. Second of all, every time you use Plant Your Change connected to your Aspiration card, we take the spare change of your transaction and apply it to Plenty and Tree. And we share that audited impact report with our customers every month to show them how many trees that you've planted by using Plant Your Change. The Aspiration community has planted 3 million trees in just five months. So this is specific measurable impact that people can wrap their arms around and be proud of. So I'm curious about the drivers for this. You know, Aspiration, I'm imagining, is responding to something that you're seeing among consumers around what they want when it comes to fighting climate change. And I believe you've done some polling on this recently. Can you walk me through what you're seeing among the public on environmentally friendly banking? Well, first of all, people aren't aware that banks are using their money to make loans to fossil fuel projects. And when they're made aware of that, they want to change right away. And um, they view climate as a non-partisan issue. I think this is such a key insight. Republicans, Democrats, Biden supporters, Trump supporters want climate action. Um, you know, among the Washington, D.C. echo chamber, um, the climate crisis might feel political, but among everyday folks of all political stripes, it's a consensus issue that, that everyone believes requires urgent action. And as they learn that they can take action every single day, every time they're using their debit card or credit card to buy something, you know, they really embrace it. The credit and debit card activities you use can be more than just how you buy your groceries. It can also be um, everyday climate action you're taking. Yeah. So I understand Aspiration conducted a survey that found 84% of Biden voters believe climate change is an important issue, with 65% calling it very important. But interestingly, 28% of Trump voters said they believe in climate change and that it's an important issue. But when you drilled down further, you found that among young Trump voters, 44% believe climate change is an important issue. So a generational change happening there, I think. And when you strip out those national politics and get to the consumer level, the individual level, it is interesting to see how climate change is really not that controversial a topic anymore. Well, I think we're going to look back at the climate crisis question like 
we look back on cigarettes. You know, um, so many of our grandparents' generation smoked cigarettes, and uh, they didn't know the, all, all the health effects. And and we look back and we talk with them and, and we ask a lot of how could you not have known? Similarly, I think that um, Gen Z, you know, people who are in their teens today and, and younger in 20 years are going to look back and ask, what the heck are you doing? How, you know, how are you so asleep? Did you not realize that, that the climate crisis was making the planet inhabitable? And so I think part of what's unfolding Julia, is that there's a demographic evolution as young people become adults. Um, they recognize that this is a question of science, not politics. Can I ask, how did you get in this space? What was driving you? I've been passionate about the climate crisis since I was six years old. I remember when my mom told me about how the styrofoam packaging that McDonald's used to use was bad for the ozone layer. Um, you know, I had this really epic um, experience when one of my friend's moms picked me and um, my friend up from school and took us to McDonald's. And as my mom recounted to me, I threw an epic temper tantrum because I said that my friend's mom was destroying the planet because she took us to McDonald's and used styrofoam packaging. And, um, you know, I'm just saying it's not a coincidence that after that temper tantrum, eventually McDonald's stopped using styrofoam packaging. So <laughs> correlation, causation, I'll leave you to decide. But um, but I've been passionate about it since I was a kid. You know, I'm 41, so that's 35 um, years I've been tuned into these issues. And credit to my mom for turning me on to them. Great. Well, takeaways here are that fighting climate change resonates across the aisle. We know this from lots of polling, including some of the recent polling that you've done at Aspiration. And we know that solutions exist to move money out of fossil fuels and and move your own money as a consumer out of fossil fuels if you want to. And we've learned that sometimes a temper tantrum just might work. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Well, Joe, thanks so much for taking time to speak with me. Thanks very much for having me, Julia. Banks, no longer just to hold on to your dollars and cents, but to help fight the climate crisis. Hope you learned something this episode, which is our latest episode in the Ditched mini series on fossil fuels, money flows, and the greening of finance. You can find these episodes airing Mondays over the next few weeks on the Political Climate Podcast feed. And as we noted at the top of the show, these episodes will also be distributed via the ourdailyplanet.com website. Thank you for listening. I'm Julia Piper, and I hope you tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.